There is a fifth dimension, beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. For a generation of film directors, The Twilight Zone was something to revere. Not only did writer-creator-host Rod Serling make arguably the first serious piece of genre TV, but in his later years, he also gave some of these same guys their big breaks. Most notably, a young Steven Spielberg on the pilot of Night Gallery, who would have been fired by star Joan Crawford had Serling not intervened. Appropriately, it was Spielberg himself who helped hatch the idea of a big screen version of The Twilight Zone, but little did he know the events that took place the evening of July 23, 1982 would cast a shadow over the resulting film that nobody involved, including Spielberg, then-novice producers Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy, and most notoriously, director John Landis, would ever truly be able to escape. It's mystery, the likes of which you might find in The Twilight Zone. The movie. In this edition of What the F Happened to This Movie. Flashback to the early 80s. At a time when young directors, the so called movie brats, were becoming the dominant power in Hollywood, none was bigger than Steven Spielberg. Coming off of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Spielberg was in a position to get the phone book made as a film had he chosen to do so. According to Stephen Farber's book, Outrageous Conduct, the genesis of Twilight Zone, the movie, came during a meeting when then-head of production at Warner Brothers, Terry Samel, casually mentioned it to Spielberg as a property they had available. Yet, Spielberg was too busy with E.T. the Extraterrestrial to divert his full attention to the project. Instead, he decided to stick to the original spirit of the show, dividing the two-hour film into four half-hour segments, each to have its own director. To help him steer the ship, he partnered with John Landis. At the time, Landis's career was almost as hot as Spielberg's. His Animal House had been a smash success, while the Blues Brothers, despite going over budget, and stories of John Belushi's debauchery from the set was another hit. He switched gears with the horror comedy An American Werewolf in London, whose transformation effects courtesy of Rick Baker were seen as a game changer for the industry. Landis and Spielberg were friends at this point, with them cameoing in each other's movies. Can I help you? And it was agreed that the two would produce the film independently for Warner Brothers, with little studio meddling as long as they agreed to stick with a two-hour running time and a PG rating. It was decided that Landis would direct the opening prologue, as well as the first segment, which was to be the only original story in the film, with the rest all being adaptations of episodes. To direct the other two installments, they sold on Joe Dante, who was then coming off of The Howling, ironically, a movie that was seen as a rival to Landis's Werewolf, and Australian director George Miller, then basking in the success of The Road Warrior. Each was to be left alone to do their segments, with executive producer Frank Marshall then in charge of the day-to-day. -day. Landis's segment was to be about a middle-aged bigot forced to see the world through the eyes of those he despises. One scene which was to be his redemption, involved him stuck in Vietnam 
and called for him to rescue two children in the midst of a helicopter attack. For the part, he chose middle-aged actor Vic Morrow, then best known for the World War II TV series Combat. Morrow's career was in decline, with him accepting role after role in schlocky Italian B-movies like Great White. For him, this seemed to be a golden opportunity, and the actor proved to be a trooper, doing many of his own stunts, and was apparently well-liked by all on a tense set, with Landis having the reputation as a hot-tempered perfectionist. Indeed, his attention to detail was such that, in the pivotal scene where Morrow was to rescue the two kids, he insisted on children being used. In addition to Morrow himself, in a situation that might have relied on stunt performers and dummies on another movie. What exactly happened that night has been debated over and over. The movie was being shot at Indian Dunes near Magic Mountain. A helicopter crashed during the filming of a Vietnam battle scene. And led to a long trial in which Landis and associate producer George Fosley Jr. went on trial for manslaughter. But what is known without doubt is this. Two children, seven-year-old Micah Din Lee and six-year-old Renee Shin Yi Chen were hired without permits and paid under the table in order to circumvent California's child labor laws, which didn't allow kids to work at night. Allegedly, Fosley Jr. also hid the kids from a fire safety officer who also worked as a welfare worker. What happened after is among the worst mishaps in film history in which a Bell UH-1 Iroquois helicopter, in the middle of shooting a dangerous scene, crashed on top of Morrow and the two kids. Morrow and one of the children were decapitated. The other was crushed. The film was shut down, briefly, but eventually was started up again. Landis's segment, and what has to be one of the craziest moves in Hollywood history, was left in the film meaning Morrow is still in the movie, although all footage involving the kids was deleted. A new ending was made out of the existing footage, and Landis moved on to make trading places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Spielberg, who despite an urban legend to the contrary, was not on set that night, and apparently had no knowledge of the kids being hired illegally, had to return and film his segment, as did Dante and Miller, all of whom did their best to keep the film intact, but according again to Farber's book, Spielberg was a broken man at this point and went through the motions. Meanwhile, his producer, Frank Marshall, who was on set that night, ended up going to Europe to start pre-production on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and his knowledge of the illegal hiring has always been debated, although he was never charged. He would eventually marry Kathleen Kennedy, who at the time worked for Spielberg and ran interference for him with the press. Spielberg only ever commented on the record about it once, saying the accident made everyone who worked on the movie sick to the center of our souls. While never calling out Landis directly, he did say, no movie is worth dying for. I think people are standing up much more now than ever before to producers and directors who ask too much. If something isn't safe, it's the right and responsibility of every actor or crew member to yell, cut. Indeed, the incident apparently ended both Landis and Spielberg's working and professional relationship. Eventually, Morrow's children, including actress Jennifer Jason Lee, would file and settle a wrongful death lawsuit against Warner Brothers, John Landis, and Steven Spielberg. The terms have never been disclosed. The film was eventually released on June 24, 1983, 
when it grossed $29,450,919 domestically. It wasn't a financial disaster, but it was seen as far below average for all involved. The reviews were mixed. Landis' segment was attacked by critics, although some enjoyed his prologue with Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks, while Spielberg's segment, an innocuous drama about retirement home residents that become young again, was seen as corny. Ron Howard would do a similar story, better, in Cocoon two years later. However, the Joe Dante and George Miller segments were raved about. Miller's segment in particular, a remake of the classic Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, starring John Lithgow in the role originally played by William Shatner, was hailed as a mini-masterpiece, where he plays a plane passenger convinced a gremlin is going to cause a plane crash. A third version of the story, starring Adam Scott, was recently made for Jordan Peele's CBS All Access anthology reboot of The Twilight Zone. Critics also praised the score by Jeffrey Goldsmith, and it became something of a staple in home video. Ghoulishly, something else that became a staple of home video was footage of the helicopter accident, which made its way into the infamous Faces of Death video series. Even more graphic footage of the accident can easily be found on the internet, including YouTube, with the footage somehow leaking during the resulting trial, which took place in 1987. At this trial, Landis and Fossil Jr. found themselves on trial for manslaughter, but in the end, they were acquitted in what's considered a controversial decision. Initially, Landis's career seemed to bounce back nicely, with Trading Places and his video for Michael Jackson's Thriller cementing his place on the A-list. His Into the Night became a cult classic, while Spies Like Us and The Three Amigos were both hits. However, as the publicity around the trial started to ramp up in 87, Landis's career hit a slump. He was hired for coming to America by his good friend Eddie Murphy, but the two infamously clashed on set. Things really came to a head years later, when Murphy gave an interview to Playboy, where he said, I don't want to say who was guilty or who was innocent, but if you're directing a movie and two kids get their heads chopped off at f***ing 12 o'clock at night when there ain't supposed to be kids working, and you said action, then you have some sort of responsibility. So my principals wouldn't let me go down there and sit in court. That's just the way I am. If somebody in my family was guilty of something, I wouldn't sit there for them in the courtroom and say, you've got my support. that. The most it would be is, hey, you go work that out. I still love you. I'm still your friend. Murphy grew to despise Landis so much that he even went so far as to say, Vic Morrow has a better chance of working with Landis than I do. Even still, the two reteamed six years later for Beverly Hills Cop 3, which would wind up being one of Landis' last major films. His Blues Brothers 2000 and The Stupids were major flops, but arguably, it was the release of Stephen Farber's outrageous conduct that really hurt his career. With Landis' actions on the set and in the aftermath laid out in excruciating detail, indeed, Landis never seemed to escape the shadow of the book. When we were working on Masters of Horror, he was up doing prep for his episode, which was going to shoot after us. He was walking around the sound stages one day and there was a teamster sitting there reading the book, Outrageous Conduct, about the helicopter accident, about the entire incident, just reading it openly while John's walking back and forth. And John noticed it and the guy was making sure John noticed it and John didn't say anything. And then finally, about the third time he walked by, the guy cleared his throat and said, hey, John, I'm wondering, would you sign this for me? Mm. The balls on him kind of blew my mind. 
John's reaction, John stopped and he said, look, man, I really don't appreciate that. And and he kind of explained to him where he was coming from, which is, look, I've I've had to deal with this for a long time. You really don't know anything beyond the book you're holding. So I don't know why you're going to bother me about it, but it's not appropriate. And I really don't appreciate it. And the guy went, cool. But seriously, would you sign it? And then John lost his mind and left at a grindhouse screening when Planet Terror was playing. John Landis is sitting two rows in front of me at an early press screening. And there's that scene where they fly the helicopter through the zombies and they tilt it down to cut zombie heads off. And people started to turn to stare at him. It drove it home to me that he carries that with him everywhere and that no matter what he does or where he goes, it's a constant reminder. So anybody who thinks he got off light. I don't think he got off light, but I think that if he carries that guilt with him every day, that's appropriate. As for The Twilight Zone, with the series on CBS All Access getting good reviews and ratings, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Although the film, as it is, is still a reminder that in many cases, truth is stranger than fiction. (laughs) 